0: The following Dahmer discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at the Zen Center of New York City. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org zcnyc. Thanks for listening. This is from the Blue Cliff Record, Koan Collection. a person who's died the great death, the pointer. When right and wrong are mixed, even the sages can't know. When going against and with, vertically and horizontally, even the Buddhas can't know. One who is a person detached from the world, who transcends convention, reveals the abilities of a great person who stands out from the crowd. They walk on thin ice, run on a sword's edge. They're like the unicorn's horn, like a lotus flower in fire. When they see someone beyond comparison, they know they are on the same path. Who is an expert? As a test, I'm citing this old case. Listen. Master Zhaozhou asked Totsu, How is it when a person who has died the great death returns to life? Totsu said, They must not go by night. They must get there in daylight. The verse In life, there's an eye. Still, it's the same as death. Why use antiserum to test an adept? Even the ancient Buddhas, they say, have never arrived. I don't know who can scatter dust and sand. Good morning, everybody. It's very nice to be here. It's nice that you're here. It's all nice. <laughs> and uh, it's nice to have, you know, to see so many students. And I just want to encourage um, particularly the students who are living in the city to, to make come into the temple part of your practice. You know, this is a way we make our practice larger. We offer it. Sometimes when I talk to students, they say, well, you know, I practice at home. And I say, yeah, that's good. Everybody needs to be able to practice at home and on their own. But when we come and practice together, something different happens. And we're also offering our practice to others. And it's really one of the really good things about the Sangha is uh, is having <clears throat> people from different quarters, different experiences, different parts of the path. You know, people just starting out, people who've been practicing a long time. I remember when I first went to Zen Center of Los Angeles, where Dada Roshi had trained, and his teacher was still teaching. And this was in the mid-80s, when the monastery was quite, still quite new, and and there weren't very many, or any, really, very seasoned practitioners. They, the monastery hadn't been there that long. And going to ZCLA, where that had been in, 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 in operation for now, you know, 20, 25 years. And just being with other practitioners who were much more seasoned, and I could feel, you know, it just felt different, it felt good. So just an encouragement to, to um, help support everybody's practice here at the temple. So this Sangha we're studying, birth and death. You know, and one of the things to appreciate about the Buddha Dharma is how how simply and honestly the Dharma encourages us, to, encourages us to face those simple truths of our lives. And so you're all familiar with the, you know, the, the, those essential inescapable truths that the Buddha encountered of our aging, the fragility of our bodies, healthy one day, sick the next. And then eventually we die. We pass from this life. And then that's true for every living thing. Every living thing experiences those, lives within those realities. And, you know, a lot of people don't like them. They don't like those realities. And we're sort of taught to not like them. That getting older is somehow a betrayal of our youth. That getting sick is a betrayal of being healthy. And dying is the ultimate betrayal. As though these things should not be happening, but just think about when we die, what good company you're in, right? <laughs> how, many, how many have gone before you, and so, so we're invested, right, clinging to life, which makes it very hard to live life deeply and fully, because within that clinging, as within all clinging, is there's anxiety, there's nervousness. Why else would we cling? And so in this ango, and as I, you know, I've said at the beginning that in making this the theme, birth and death, it's not like this is new, right? This is always there, but now we're just bringing it out and really paying attention and drawing on these teachings of Master Dogen and the Buddha and the Mahapana and Master Dogen in the fascicle that we're studying, birth and death, said, in birth there is nothing but birth. And in death, there is nothing but death. Accordingly, when birth comes, face and actualize birth. When death comes, face and actualize death. Do not avoid them. Do not desire them. And can you see that he's talking about birth and death and how to face them and actualize them? But he's also talking about Zazen. right? When you sit and and whatever appears... You like it, you don't like it, that's your opinion. You're entitled to have one. But don't make more of it than it is. It's just an opinion. And so Dogen is saying, when whatever arises, arises, face it and actualize it. Let it be real. What does that mean? Don't turn it into something it's not. Don't make it a fantasy, a projection. Now, of course, we do. We do that incessantly, we do that unconsciously. We're not even aware of the projections, which is part of what has to change. We have to begin to see them so that we can see in the moments where we're not actually experiencing what's in front of us or inside of us, but our desire for it or our avoidance of it. Dogen goes on to say, this birth and death is the life of a Buddha. This is where we gain life on this enlightening path. This is where life comes to life. He says, if you try to exclude it, you will lose that life of a Buddha, which is your life. If you cling to it, trying to remain in it, you will also lose the life of a Buddha. And what remains will be the mere form, a shadow, an echo. Only when you don't avoid birth and death or long for it do you enter the Buddha's mind? What remains will be the mere form of a Buddha. Maybe that's why when we're living at a distance, when we're clinging and avoiding, we go through our lives with a sense that somehow we're doing this thing. We're living it, we're having relationships, we're going through all of these experiences, but somehow it's as though at a distance as though there's a mere form. And isn't it interesting that within that, there can be the sense that, well, wait a minute. That can't be all there is. There has to be something that is more immediate, more closer, more alive, not a mere form. What is the thing itself? We are born into this life. And in birth, a person seems to come into existence with personhood, an identity. This is who they are. And we give them a name, and they begin to acquire characteristics and attributes. And they are born with certain attributes and characteristics. And as we grow up, we're told what a lot of those mean. What value do they have? Is it a lot? Is it a little? Do those characteristics make you a worthy or unworthy person, a high or low person? And so we acquire an identity or identities and a sense of essence, which is the essence of the sense of a self, is that there's something moving all through our lives that is me, is the me of me and the you of you. And it's eternal, it's permanent, it's like a soul. But the Buddha realized that's not actually what's happening. There is no such thing. When we look, and that's exactly what you're doing when you're sitting, you may not be aware of that yet. It may not have come into your direct experience yet, but you're looking directly into that sense of self. And the clinging and the avoidance only make sense if there is someone and something that is solid and fixed, and you and not you, but the Buddha realized that ultimately, actually, in every moment, there is just a moment of perception. And then it passes, and then another moment of perception, then it passes, and it happens so quickly we don't see it. And so our mind kind of magically and kind of wonderfully creates a continuity, a seamlessness, so that we can sit here and it's not like, you know, disjointed and fragmented like living in a strobe light, which would be really nauseating. But the Buddha called this the unborn, that in we are born, we come into this life, but there is no person that is born, there is no identity. And then we age from the beginning, before we even leave the womb, we're aging. And we kind of age up, and then we start to kind of age down. And in that what the Buddha realizes, is because there is the unborn, no personhood, there is no actual transformation of something that is you, that is getting older and now getting more frail. There is just the ongoing moments of perception that we see and perceive and name and give all kinds of meaning to. And so the Buddha said, in our aging, there is the ageless. There is something that is not getting older, that was not young. When right and wrong are mixed, that is, cannot be seen, are not differentiated or discriminated. Even the sages can't know. <clears throat> One who is a person detached from the world transcends convention, Reveals this reveals the abilities of a great person who stands out from the crowd. In the monastic study, <clears throat> we've been looking at a treatise by Thomas Merton, the, the Trappist monk who many of you are familiar with. And it's a treatise on monastic life. And he talks about, he's talking about compassion, love, and he talks about disinterested love. Disinterested love. Buddhism talks about dispassion, detachment, a person who is detached from the world. We tend to think of that as being remote, aloof, Distant, cold, uncaring, that is not at all what it means in Buddhism. It means quite the opposite. And I think it meant the same thing for Thomas Merton. But in that intimacy, it's not entangled. That's the disinterested. It's not that it's not interested, it's it's just not entangled. And what keeps it from being distant and cold and aloof is the love, is the compassion. And when we are experiencing something and our emotions arise, something we care about, something we want, something we want to work for or towards, and it brings a lot of suffering, that's the entanglement. And the more we're able to... It's one of the greatest challenges of practice is how do you care about something very deeply? It matters, like life and death. But without that entanglement. And so there's the unborn, the ageless, and then we pass from this life, we die. And in death, because nothing has been born, nothing is lost. An autonomous being a person who exists in and of themselves, that identity, that soul, has not been lost because it never came into being in the first place. We call this the deathless. The Buddha called it unbinding. In in the early sutra we're studying, it is a sutra of the Buddha's unbinding, which is another word for his death. And it's kind of a wonderful term, right? Because if we think of the ways in which we are bound up, right? Right? Right, that's our constriction, it's our confinement, it's the tether, it's all that we it's the difficulty of life. How do we unbind that? The Buddha likened it to a knot. How do we untie that knot? And that really when we're practicing in every moment that we're aware and we're not grasping, we're not avoiding, which is just a different form of clinging, we are unbinding. We are untying that knot. And if you keep practicing, you will feel that knot becoming looser, less tight, less rigid, less bound. And as Dogen says, if we try... To avoid it, to exclude it, we will lose the life of a Buddha. You know, it's kind of interesting when we really love something, or passion, we want to cling to it. And we think by clinging to it, we'll hold on to it, we'll keep it close, we'll keep it mine. But actually what happens is we lose it in that. Because now the thing itself is lost. What we're clinging to is actually our desire, our fear, our idea, our projection. And so that's why to really love something, we have to let it go, right? That's a very interesting dynamic in training where the teacher's compassion, love for the student, right? And guiding, and the guidelines of practice, the precepts, the precautions, the rules of monastic living, all of the things that we enter into and take up and, help, and let us help us, to hold this restlessness, this wildness, right—the difficulty of just being in this body, staying in our skin, not turning away—and how those sort of those aspects of training help us to hold that, the stillness, the silence, and that rather than that be creating more bondage, although it might you might feel very bound in certain moments sitting here on the cushion, right? Am I right? <laughs> and it can seem like. You know, you're doing this to me, right? If I could just move away, right? But then we're just perpetuating. We're moving away from that opportunity to realize we are not bound. And so to let go of our discriminating consciousness, the mind that divides and judges and compares the names that loves and hates with clinging, And when we love with clinging, it's not quite love anymore. It's something else. So Dogen says, this undivided activity, this letting go of this discriminating consciousness, and that's the mind, that's the the impulsive mind, the reactive mind, right? Something arises, and we react to it, right? We like it, so we want it. We don't like it, so we don't want it. And it's that impulsive consciousness that we're trying to just calm, not subdue, not extinguish, not destroy. It is not a thing. That's why we speak of it as habit. The Buddha spoke about habit energy. There's an energy there, an impulsive energy. You don't even have to decide to react, right? You don't decide. You just react. That's showing us the habitual nature of that how it lives deep within us. It's not a thought. It's not a, deci- a decision. And so Dogen says, <clears throat> when, we are, when we let that go, then that such activity makes birth, allows birth to be holy birth, allows death to be holy death, allows this moment to be holy this moment. And actualize just at this moment, in this way, this activity is not large or small. It's not immeasurable nor measurable. It's not close nor, nor far. It's just what it is. In other words, there is no analysis. There is no distinction. There is no discrimination. It's just what it is. And I was talking to somebody this morning, Doksan, and I said, that is one of the greatest expressions of love. To see something... And see it for what it is. Right. To see it holy. You know, as opposed to I am I love you and I'm gonna love you so much more when you change. <laughs> and here's a list, <laughs> right? And that's how you're gonna get my love. That's not love. And yet, change does need to happen. Right? And so, how do we how do we engage in the shift, right, to release what is not helpful, and to bring forth and strengthen what is helpful, without clinging, right, to an idea of something that is solid and fixed. To uh, the relationship in Zhaozhou, these are two. Uh, great Chinese masters living in the ninth century. <clears throat> and they were dharma, um, uh, they were related, they, their, their lineage traces back to Xidao, so it was very, fairly early in the, in the Zen tradition. Um, so they weren't directly brothers, but they were kind of like cousins. And uh, there's a story of how Zhaozhou once went to look for Totsu, and he, he went to Totsi Mountain, where he was living. He took on the name of the mountain. And they met each other on the road, but they'd never met each other before. They didn't know what they looked like. So Zhaozhou said, are you the master of Mount Totsi? And Totsi was like a beggar and said, tea, salt, a coin, please. And Zhaozhou just went on, passed him by and went on to the mountain where Totsi's hut was and sat down inside. And later, Totsi showed up carrying a bottle of a jug of oil. And Zhao Zhou looked at him and said, long have I heard of Totsi, but since coming here, all I see is an old timer selling oil. Totsi said, you've only seen an old timer selling oil. You haven't met Totsi. And Zhao Zhou said, what is Totsi? And Totsi held up the jug and said, oil, oil. And Zhao said, what do you say about the one who undergoes the great death and thus attains life? And Totsi said, they can't make the journey at night. They have to come in daylight. So that's what this koan is drawn from, is that dialogue. So this is how two old masters meet each other, right, and have a conversation deep within knowing. Right. The Great Death. How is it when a person dies the great death? There are many deaths in our life. In a sense, they're happening, in a very real sense, they're happening in every moment. The Buddha said, in every moment, because of karmic actions, and the conditions of this moment, externally and internally, this moment has come into being. That's what makes it possible. This moment is dependent upon those causing conditions. That's another way of saying that they're empty of any inherent existence that exists on its own. So in Buddhism, if you really look deeply at the implications of a, self, of a sense of a self, an independent, self-existing entity with an essence, a soul, whatever you want to call it, that the real implication of that is, well, it can't change, it can't be subject to change, it can't be subject to conditions, because otherwise it's not independent, right? And so, and that means it has to have always been, it can't come into being, because then again, it would be subject to certain causes, conditions that we're bringing into existence, so that can't be it can't ever depart, it's eternal, it's permanent. It's not subject to change. Which is why maybe in attachment to the self, we are so resistant often to change. And so what the Buddha said is in each moment there is just those causes and conditions coming together that give rise to something that we perceive. We have a perception. And he said, that doesn't belong to you. You can't possess it. It's not who you are. And then it's gone. And then there's another. And then there's another. And so, in that way, every moment there's birth and death. Every moment each moment that there's a rising and passing, in each moment when we let go, there's a kind of a death of, le- of clinging to that, to that idea, to that desire, to that attachment. In every moment of shift, when something shifts, something opens up, something is seen, there's a kind of death of what had been, of a prior view, each dawn, in a sense, there's a, a coming to life. That's why the morning is such an important time. When people ask me, why do we get up so early? Like, what's the deal there? Right? Why do we get up so early? And I say, enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that we the reason we get up before dawn is to because we're helping the sun to rise, helping the day to come. (laughs) So each day, in a sense, is dying to yesterday. The end of any relationship is a dying to the relationship as it was. In a sense, every relationship we've ever had never really ends in our mind, but its form changes. And so there's a death every life transition in a sense, is dying to what has been and, di- and being born into something new. But what is the great death? In Buddhism, it's dying to the sense of self, which just really means to free ourselves, to liberate ourselves from that, to liberate our thoughts from the idea that they are defining us or obstructing us, to free ourselves from our emotions, the idea that they are good or bad that they have intrinsic power over us. In the the commentary, it says, a person who has died the great death has no Buddhist doctrines and theories, no mysteries and marvels, no gain and loss, no right and wrong, no long and short, disinterested compassion. They're not living life by clinging to life, And the commentary says, when they get here, when you get here, you just let it rest this way. You just let it be this way. That is the way it is. Dukkha is not wanting what is. It's wanting what I want. Right? So when we die and we all go to heaven, if you're a heaven-going sort of person, whose heaven is it going to be, actually? If you smoke, then you certainly want a heaven where you get smoke. If you don't smoke, you don't want to be in heaven where people are smoking. So whose heaven is it going to be? <laughs> to just let it rest this way. And to really understand this is not passive. Being passive is just another state of trying to control passively. And so we even talk about it being passive-aggressive, which is a very definite position. This is not passive. Just let it rest this way. It is, as Dogen says, in birth there is nothing but birth, and in death there is nothing but death. And so when birth comes, face it, actualize it where death comes face it actualize it practicing every day is training mind training we talk about mind training training your whole body and mind to live and in training to live we are at the very same moment training to die we are learning how to die how is that so Because as we go into our aging and illness and death, we're just facing moments, other moments, new moments, different moments. And they, just like all previous moments, need to be met as they are, without avoiding, without clinging. When we don't do that, there's trouble. It's a certainty. And it might be small, and it might be large. The large ones tend to get our attention, the sort, the small ones avoid our attention for a long time until they don't. And then we begin to realize how deep the clinging and avoidance goes, how permeating dukkha is in very subtle ways. There are so many ways in which we accommodate ourselves to all the minor annoyances and irritations and so on. How do we get to this place of just letting things rest this way? The commentary says, In reality, you must let go of your hands while hanging from a cliff. Trust yourself and accept your experience. Let go of your hands while hanging to the cliff. Well, that sounds rather foolish. Well, I bet there are people in your life that you've talked to and described this to them and they think, well, that seems rather foolish. What are you getting? Right? You're giving, but what are you getting? Like, show me the money. Where's your enlightenment? Samsara can make anything make sense. Which really means we in our mind can make anything make sense. We can make anything seem rational and logical. And Buddhism has been teaching this for 2,500 years. And it has very, very sort of particular ways of expressing that. We see what is tainted or impure and we see it as pure. We see what is suffering and we see it as happiness. In our time, we see what is. Oppression and we call it freedom. Trust yourself and accept your experience. Afterwards, in losing your life, the great death, in losing, dying to that sense of self, of me, mine. That's how the Buddha described delusion. is having that sense of this is me. This is what I am. This is what belongs to me. That when we let go of that, we illuminate that, we liberate that. That that's the great death. And then it says afterwards you return to life again. You come back to life. Come back into this body, back into these senses, back into your mind that differentiates, that needs to know the difference between right and wrong that needs to see the difference between self and other. You need to know where the door is to get out of the room, right? If you can't differentiate it, that's not going to work. But how to do that, how to live within our senses, experience the world of differences without diluting, without creating, projecting false ideas. In other words, letting things be as they are, loving them. And then the teacher says, I can't deceive you. How could anyone hide this extraordinary truth? It's always there. That's what the Buddha realized. <clears throat> That's what Buddha nature is. It's always there. It's here. It's in you. Every time you come into this room, you bring it. When you leave, you take it with you. But the thing is, it's not a thing. If it was a thing, we'd know how to find it, right? It's not a thing. Enlightenment is not a thing. That's why in the poem it says, even the ancient Buddhas, they say, have never arrived. Even the enlightened ones. That's what they've realized. That metaphor of crossing over to the other shore from samsara to enlightenment. As soon as you wash up on that other shore, after all of your sincere effort, you realize you haven't taken a step. You have not ultimately changed one thing. And a life has been transformed. And that is hard to work out in the mind, right? Wait a minute. Am I changing or not changing? Am I transforming or not transforming? And so the Buddha said, it's like this. Things are not as they seem and nor are they otherwise. (laughs) And so what that's really saying is you're not going to figure it out. No one has figured it out. It's not a figure-outable kind of thing. It's in a different aspect of your consciousness. That's why we're sitting in a training hall, a hall of Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, a hall of awakening, not a classroom. And don't get me wrong, classrooms are great. Knowledge is great. It's very powerful. But it functions in certain realms, right? There are other realms that it can't enter. And so we sit to enter that aspect of our consciousness, to, as Dogen says, go into that inner chamber. And dying to the self, letting go that deeply, then you come back to life again. So Zhaozhou is asking Totsi, how do you do that? How do you come back to life? And Totsi says, you have to go, you can't go by night, you have to go by day. By night is the time where there is no Differentiation it's an image, it's a metaphor, it's poetic, it's a way of pointing to an experience where you're discriminating consciousness, you have allowed that to come to rest. And that's really what practice is. All of this effort right, is to let things just come to an absolute state of rest so that they everything can be just as it always is, but now in your mind. And so then you might reasonably ask, well, then why do we have to expend so much effort? Right? Why was Zazen so effortful? Because the habit energy of that impulsive consciousness, of our avoidance, of our clinging, is so strong and so impulsive. And, and here's the kicker. We believe in it. We trust it. Why? Repetition. Over and over and over. You know, if you get from here to your home one way and you only go that one way, for you, that's the way. And if you never try another route, no other route exists. And that's part of the courage that practice demands, is we have to be willing to try another way, which means when that impulse of consciousness reacts, and we would go down that road, because we've gone down so many times before, and you know what you're going to get, even though it sucks. At least you know sucks, sucks. Right? You know what to do with that. And so we have to have the courage to go another way, which means rest. Don't pick that up and run with it. Don't push that away. And what that means is learning how to live in that moment with a little bit of discomfort, or maybe a lot. But you know what? You're built for that. How long have human beings been experiencing discomfort? Long time. What does that mean? We've evolved. We have, Every living thing evolves to live within the adversity of its circumstance, its environment. So we have the ability to hold that discomfort and not try and change it. That's what dukkha is. But remember, it's not passive. So that means the things that need to be changed, we work to change, and we do that. But without ill will, without hating the thing, we're trying to change. Or attachment in love, or an idea of love to the thing. We're trying to change. Again, that greatest expression of respect, and dignity. To be able to see, say, I see you. And for that to be true. Which is a tremendous thing. And, and it's felt, right? When somebody sees you, you know that you feel it. And so going by day is what practice is about every day. It's why we sit on this cushion, and then at some point you have to get up. You get up and you go home, you go to work, you go to the streets, you go upstairs. If you live here, you do stuff. You have conversations. So we go from silence to speech, from stillness to movement, from rest to play from crying to laughing, from not thinking to thinking. And we go back and forth, in a sense, back and forth, back and forth, until there's no back and forth. There's no boundary. You're not leaving one place and going to the next. It's just one life, one world, one whole, Statoro, she said, one whole Beautiful catastrophe. <laughs> One of the things I've always appreciated about Buddhism was that the way the Dharma helps us to look faith, just simply and squarely in the face of things. Without an unrealistic fantastical kind of optimism, but without pessimism, right? Where Buddhas, you're, you have Buddha nature. We should have faith and trust in ourselves. And the house is on fire. And so we need to free ourselves from that which builds fires. And we need to do that together. And so here we are. How wonderful. I'll end with a poem. In the depth of a moonless night, where have all the flowers gone? Timeless spring washes everything away. At the height of the noonday sun, what has become of the abundant spring? As before, as now, as always, it's here. The mystery that is you, though you may know it, can never understand it. This is the treasure that is unborn and alive in you alone. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.